0: we to
1: Once again, welcome to Diffusion, the only science radio show in the world to be legally threatened by a major cable US network. This week, we've got more excellent interviews with more excellent scientists than you can poke a bunsen burner at. People like Eureka Prize winners and zoologists studying Egyptian Tumart. Plus, as always, we'll cram in whatever we can find lying around on the studio floor. But before we get to any of that, here's your weekly Diffusion Science News with Jackie Hayes.
2: Australia has two new dinosaurs. Dr Keir from the University of Adelaide and the South Australian Museum has identified the two new species that lived around the Coober Pedy region. The identification was based on fossils uncovered in recent excavations and also lots of fossils that have been found during opal mining over the last 40 years. Both species lived 115 million years ago, when Australia was a frigid continent much, much closer to Antarctica. The two new species have been dubbed Amunasaurus and Opioleonectus. Amuna is the Aboriginal name for the Coober region and Opioleonectus means the opal swimmer from Andamooka. Both were long-necked marine reptiles. Amunosaurus was a 2.4-metre-long meat-eater with crest-like ridges on its skull. Opaleonectus was about 6 metres long with needle-like teeth for trapping small fish. One of the most remarkable features of the skeletons is that being from the Coober region, they've been opalized. Most of the fossil skeletons are bright blue and green. From the University of Florida... Dr. Hahn has studied how ants store excess fat and pass it on to other colony members. Hahn captured the queens of different species and reared several colonies under controlled laboratory conditions in nests for two years. The ants were fed the yummy mixture of cockroach and moth eggs, combined with honey, vitamins and salt. Individual ants would store excess fat and then pass it on to the other colony members through lipid-rich oral secretions or unfertilized eggs. The passing around of nutrient reserves also explains the division of labour among colonies. Dr Hahn tested two closely related ant species. Individual ants in one species were able to store more fat than individuals in other species. However, in the species with less fat per individual, there was a higher proportion of soldier ants in storage. Attention all chocolate addicts. Consumption of compounds in cocoa can lead to a range of circulatory health benefits. Back in January 2006, the compound in chocolate which is responsible for improved circulation was pinpointed. In a presentation at the recent National Confectioners Association in the US, it was shown that chocolate also contains stimulants. Thus, eating chocolate apparently also increases alertness and attention. This follows long-term suggestions that mental capability may improve after eating cocoa. However, I would take these findings with a grain of cocoa for most of them have been sponsored by Mars Incorporated. Next time you're chowing down on that chocolate bar, you might like to convince yourself of the circulation and cognitive benefits of your snack choice. You might also like to ask yourself, wouldn't it be nice if the world was Mars? However, while you are eating that chocolate bar, don't forget that chocolate is 30% sugar and Australia is in the middle of an obesity epidemic. There's new evidence to suggest that obsessive-compulsive disorder is genetic. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, causes sufferers to experience severe anxiety and disturbing thoughts that are eased by repeating certain behaviours. Close relatives of people with OCD are up to nine times more likely to develop OCD themselves. In two papers published simultaneously, researchers from four universities in the United States and Canada reported an association between OCD patients and a particular gene. The gene regulates the transport of the neurotransmitter glutamate in and out of brain cells. The studies are important not just because they're reported simultaneously, but because there exist previous studies that show a functional link between glutamate and OCD. The discovery of the link between OCD and this gene is a promising step forward in the treatment. However, the researchers warn that there are many other factors, including hormones and infections, that could be triggering or worsening OCD symptoms.
1: Linda Evans is a research assistant at Macquarie University's Animal Behaviour Laboratory. She applied this background to her doctoral research in Egyptian archaeology to investigate animal behaviour in ancient Egypt, as recorded in Tumart.
0: How did you get the idea of looking
3: at the animals in the Egyptian tomb paintings? I guess that really came out of my work. In the course of doing my master's degree, I got to look at a number of tomb paintings and realised that they're just full of animals doing the most extraordinary things, but when I saw what Egyptologists wrote about them, I realized that often the importance of what was being portrayed was being completely missed by these historians. They mainly focused on the human beings in the tomb scenes rather than the animals. So I guess I was just intrigued as a, someone who comes from a working background of studying animal behavior. Now, you looked at the artwork from the Old Kingdom, which is 2600 BC. What was the art in that period like? Was it very simple or how detailed was it? Uh, Well, actually extremely detailed. What I was particularly looking at was wall paintings. They're actually uh, wall reliefs because they're actually embossed, carved into the walls and then later on a thin uh, layer of plaster was placed over the top of those carvings and that was painted. But over the course of time, of course, the paint has fallen away and so all we're left with are these embossed images. And yes, at this particular time period... Incredibly detailed, intricate, right down to the feathers on birds, the scales on fish, and the scenes in which these animal images appear are also extremely detailed. On the walls during the Old Kingdom period, they show scenes of everyday life. Why they put those scenes there is open to debate. One theory is that the tomb was a place where the family of the deceased would bring food offerings for the spirit of the deceased. One of the theories is that he could access That food by magically accessing the food that's depicted on the walls, right? So, being food, of course, what do we eat? Animals. And so there are animals in all of these images. What are some of the examples of the animals or other creatures? I looked at every single class from mammals right down to invertebrates, and even the insects were extraordinary to me. One of the things that I proud of and most proud of is that I found what I believe is really the only uh, known depiction of a praying mantis from ancient Egypt And this was quite fun because uh, it was in the tomb that was excavated by my supervisor, Professor Nagib Kanawati. And Professor Kanawati had identified this particular insect as a grasshopper. So I realised straight away, as soon as I saw it, that it couldn't be a grasshopper. It had to be a praying mantis due to how it was holding its forelegs in this very distinctive um, posture that looks like prayer. And even more astonishingly, though, I realised that the artist had actually positioned this insect in such a way that made it extremely difficult to see. The artist had actually positioned the abdomen and the forelegs of this insect in such a way that they sort of ran along the side of the leaves of the bush that it's um, sitting in amongst. And, of course, that's what praying mantids do in real life. They're sit-and-wait predators. Now, in one of the pictures, is a hippo. That looks a bit like a wombat. What does that do? The Egyptians were not too keen on them, and for good reason. Hippos actually kill more people in Africa every year than lions or, or crocodiles. And uh, the Egyptians were aware of just how dangerous they could be because in their tomb scenes in the Old Kingdom period, they actually show hippos biting gnar crocodiles in such a way that their hippos' tusks go right through the, the body of the crocodile. And some Egyptologists have actually written that those sorts of scenes are probably fairly dangerous. Unlikely that there's a figment of the artist 's imagination well i 've actually found reports from from Africa from people working in national parks and so on where the bodies of Noah crocodiles have been found bitten in in two. And the only animal that could do that is the hippopotamus, which has the ability to actually open its mouth up to 150 degrees. And what they're actually doing is showing their uh, opponent the size of their teeth. And what you see in the tomb scenes are often men in small canoes who have harpoons. And you will see the hippos looking up at the men from the water with their mouths wide open threatening them. And it's possible that the Egyptians may have waited for that moment, waited until a hippopotamus actually did yawn at them and threatened to actually throw their harpoons probably into the animal's mouth because the skin of the hippo is actually very, very thick and quite difficult to pierce. So if they knew that these animals would eventually get so annoyed with them that they would yawn at them, well, why not wait until that moment? So how did you match up pictures of animals in the Egyptian style to real animals? Well, first of all, again, they're so detailed, I can actually determine what species they are pretty easily. I looked at where that species, what kind of context is it occurring in. Basically, I would look at the posture of the animal in its relationship to its environment, then it would be hitting the books. I'd have to go and search through the literature. The study of animal behaviour has an enormous literature and uh, it was a matter of going to those books and reading up about what does that species do in, in those circumstances and does my animal, my Egyptian animal, match that? And over and over and over again it did. The ancient Egyptians had an incredibly acute Awareness of the, the habits of animals, such as when a bull is assessing a female, a cow, uh, trying to find out whether she's entering estrus. What they do is they actually sniff around the base of her tail. So the Egyptians show that. They actually show bulls with their noses right up underneath the tail of a, of a cow. And sometimes, in this particular circumstance, the hieroglyphic inscriptions back up what's going on. And the hieroglyphic inscriptions in those circumstances say, a herdsman, oh, quickly, get the cow away from the bull. So it's a matter of looking at the context and the posture of particular species. What about animals that might have existed then that don't have counterparts now. Did you see anything like that? No, I actually said no. All the animals that I looked at still exist today and they are found in Africa, but I have to say quite a number of them no longer exist in Egypt. Some of that's due to climate change. Uh, so very early on in Egyptian history you actually have depictions of elephants and giraffes, but before the historic period there was a climate change and those animals were pushed further south. But also some of the animals uh, have gone now from Egypt because of hunting. Now you're using what you've studied about animals to interpret the scenes. Do the scenes tell you anything about animal behavior that we didn't already know? Not really, although I have to say there are a few things that I found that we've only just become aware of in quite recent history. One thing I noticed is a depiction of a leopard that is clearly stalking, and it's approaching a pair of dogs that are in the process of pulling down an antelope of some kind or other. Now, it could be that the leopard is being shown being attracted to the kill, that it wants to scare off the dogs, essentially, and take over that antelope body. However, just in the last, I think, about decade or so, researchers studying leopards have, have noticed that they have a particular like for dog flesh. They're actually, as I understand it, are known to go into human settlements and actually preferably take dogs. So it could be that the Egyptians did notice that leopards, wherever dogs are found, leopards are found too, and that they made that association that science has only just recently realised.
1: Last week, the prestigious Australian Museum Eureka Prizes were announced at a swanky-do in Sydney. All the cream of the media set were there. Oh, and Diffusion's Tilly Boleyn.
4: 1990 was a big year. Big things happened all over the world. Nelson Mandela was released from prison. The Soviet Empire collapsed. East and West Germany were reunified. The Space Shuttle Discovery placed the Hubble Space Telescope into orbit. Margaret Thatcher resigned as PM of the UK, and of course everyone remembers where they were when they heard that Kevin Costner had won the Best Director Oscar for Dances with Wolves. A big year in anyone's books. But wait, it was even bigger. 1990 also marks the birth of the Eureka Prizes. The Eureka Prizes are awarded once a year to acknowledge and reward outstanding achievement in Australian science and science communication. There are four main prize categories, research, leadership and innovation, education and science communication. The Australian Museum Eureka Prizes have steadily grown from their humble beginnings with less than a handful of prizes in 1990 into Australia's premier science awards, with 20 prizes up for grabs this year. This year, the finalists in the science, media and communications category were announced at the Australian Museum by the Governor of New South Wales, Her Excellency Professor Bashir. After the finalists were announced and the champagne had been poured, I accosted Professor Bashir, Robin Williams and some previous Eureka winners to get their views on the Australian Museum Eureka Prizes.
0: I think they are of massive importance because they are promoting science which is about our lives, our wellbeing, the future of the planet perhaps even the future of the universe as we know it, to the wider community. And Australians, by and large, are a very intelligent uh, and information-loving society. And we believe we're a clever people who care about the world. And the way to best, I think, contribute is by understanding science and knowing the benefits that... uh, that it can bring to us and also learning about the ways we can avoid trouble whether it's environmental, personal or for populations, endangered species. It's endless and it's exciting. It's detective work.
4: Um, and as Australia's National Science Week is coming up, have you got any events that you're excited about particularly?
0: Well, I'll be going to as many lectures as I can get to. Uh, Susan Greenfield, the eminent professor from Oxford, will be here as a guest of the a um, Powerhouse Museum. I'd very much like to hear her, um, but. The events at the Australian Museum will be wonderful and I'll be looking very much forward to uh, the outcome of the prize winners uh, in the journalism competition because really it's our journalists, our media, who promote science in ways that make it easy. Well, easier for for and acceptable to the general public and that's ever so important, especially to our young people. Absolutely.
4: Okay. well, thank you very much for speaking to us. Great pleasure.
0: Robin Williams,
4: science communicator extraordinaire. Why do you think the Eureka Prizes are important?
5: Well, I named them, I helped invent them and way back when I was president of the Australian Museum we had five of them. And uh, it's quite astonishing that since they've grown absolutely enormously, I think is it twenty-three now, or yeah. one hundred and twenty-three, or four hundred fifty-six, and you know, it's just amazing. And the
4: prize money's gone through the roof.
5: Yeah, the prize money is important because it shows you're not just handing out plaques. Indeed. Plaques are wonderful, but money is real, and uh, that's the way it's firmed up more and more because. Um, it's astonishing the way that people have uh, come to sponsor various prizes. And the, and the range is fantastic, from you know, Pfizer for the health prize, you've got a pharmaceutical company, right through to people from universities and CSIRO and Adam Spencer, you know, encouraging kids. That's what prizes really should be made of, this range of interests and applications and also from, from young and old.
4: And Australia's uh, National Science Week is coming up. Are there any particular events that you're desperate to get to?
5: (laughs) Well, it's a national thing which is terrific because it means that each place can do it in its own way. So what I'm interested in doing is, is going bush and seeing how people do it in their various places in smaller towns where it's far more intimate in many ways than some of the big cities.
4: And I'm speaking with Associate Professor Brett Nyland and Dr Brendan Burns from the University of New South Wales. So, gentlemen, as previous Eureka Prize winners, why is the Eureka Prize important to you?
6: Basically, it gives us recognition, I think, for the, for the work that we're doing and not only with the work that we as, I guess, the group lead is doing, but more so for our students, which is part of the, the greater team. And it gives us a bit more recognition on the world stage as they're recognized as being probably Australia's premier science awards. Yeah, and I just think the whole idea of having awards for scientists is, you know, well a long time coming that it's scientists are part of society too, and we're not that ugly. Give us a break.
4: What years did you actually win it, just out of interest?
5: Well we
6: 2001, thousand we and 2005 we won last year for an interdisciplinary research on uh, the evolution of life on earth as we know it Uh, we looked at some of the earliest record of life on earth is actually in australia formed by small microorganisms that form these living rock structures we call stromatolites and we're looking at these as evidence of past life on earth and also for the potential for life elsewhere in the universe in the emerging field of astrobiology
4: Exciting stuff.
1: Yeah,
6: you see scientists in Western Australia and you might even see them on Mars one day. Exactly.
4: (laughs) Okay, and National Science Week is coming up. Is there anything that you're particularly excited about during the week?
6: I want to go to every lecture possible. (laughs) I'm actually fortunate enough to be going to South Australia to visit a regional school um, with a lot of Indigenous students to talk on science there, so I'm hoping to promote science to the Indigenous community and to show what science they can potentially do later in life. We like to translate our, our work, you know, over the radio is great, but face to face, you know, translation of science is like we try to do every day in our lab and in lectures is, you know, that's where we get our gratification out of life. But seeing the enthusiasm from students and getting the going, yeah.
4: And so it should. Hurrah for science awards. The 2006 Australian Museum Eureka Prize winners will be announced at a gala dinner on August 22nd. Make sure you get online before then to vote for your favourite science star in the People's Choice Awards. Just go to www.amonline.net.au forward slash Eureka. Just promise me you won't vote for Kevin Costner.
1: And of course, that was Diffusion's own Tilly Berlin swanking it up at the Australian Museum Eureka Prizes this year. And as we do every time this time of the week, it's time for the news that didn't make the news. Now, Jackie, I believe you've been searching the internet for all sorts of things for um, sometimes clothed, sometimes not clothed people.
2: Ooh, ooh. Yeah, am I? Am I right? Well, it's not really news, I have to say, Matt. Instead, what I've done is more general interest, I think. I checked out the latest thing from Google called Google Trends, google.com forward slash trends.
1: Google actually has, it's not just a search engine. They have actually a lot of, like you've got mail, Gmail. There's a whole lot of other different products that, that, that Google has you now. And Google Trends is one of them, is that right?
2: Right. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to show what search terms are being searched for the most. So they've computed how many searches have been done over the terms that you enter into your search bar. And then they graph these results, called the search volume graph, against a linear scale of time. So uh, what it does is, if it has like a particular spike at a time, it also selects out this start, this spike... And will display the headline of a Google News story that's written near the time of the spike.
1: So basically what you're saying is you can put in a search word like, uh, for example, diffusion. Um, and it will tell you how many people or how many times that word was searched for over a yeah, number of Yeah,
2: from 2004 or whenever and when there was a significantly
1: large number, it'll display what happened at that time that may have prompted people to search that particular word. Is that basically Mm -hmm. what you're saying? That
2: is right. And uh, I've selected, as an example, here in the studio, I have printed off something from Google Trends, something which I think most people have probably used the internet to search for before. I compared Britney Spears nude to Jessica Simpson nude to Natalie Portman nude to Jessica Alba nude to Paris Hilton nude.
1: And did you get these out of your (laughs) favourites?
2: Well, I <laughs> thank you, Matt. <laughs> I went for what I thought would be the most popular search terms. It was always quoted that Britney Spears nude was the most popular searched um, term. So, what it showed was, starting from two thousand and four, an almost exponential decline in the amount of people searching for Britney Spears nude. Mm.
1: Is that and- as you? As she became more and more pregnant, the um, well, the searches. funnily <laughs> enough,
2: it selected out some news articles. And the big decline came... <laughs> the big decline came when Britney Spears got married.
5: Kevin yeah. Feline, mate,
2: what are you doing? And then, interestingly enough, Natalie Portman, who I consider to be one of the most beautiful actresses, got nearly no hits. Wow. Interestingly, though, they do show whereabouts in the world... Most people are searching this, so you can compare these stars. Ah, so, all which your country
1: world. has the most deviates? You can tell.
2: <laughs> right, right. I also went. I also went for Justin Timberlake nude versus Patrick Dempsey nude. Blah blah. blah. But they don't. They don't show it if and like, enough people haven't searched for it. If the search volume isn't big enough because they think that it invades personal information about searching. So you didn't get the male equivalent of Britney oh, Spears. You just didn't know what I it was. Couldn't. Well, maybe, maybe. Mm. Maybe there's a really hot guy in India I wasn't picking up on. A <laughs> Bollywood actor or right, something. Right, right. So it's in the early stage of development at the moment. Um, so it, they warn that it might contain a lot of inaccuracies and data sampling issues, blah, blah, blah. So don't go and use it in your PhD. But if, if you want some interesting information, check out google.com forward slash trends.
1: I got a thing on my mind. I'm
0: sure I'm gonna
1: find it. I got a thing on my mind. Sadly, that's all we have time for on this edition of Diffusion. Warming the seats on this week's show were Jackie Hayes, Tilly Boleyn, Bridget Maldine, and Vanessa Gardos. If you'd like some information on any of the features we presented this week, if you think the music we play on the show really stinks, or if you're a large American corporation who believes they own the rights to generic English words, you can email us on diffusion at 2SCR.com. Tilly massaged our ramblings into a show as producer this week with a bit of technical assistance from Vanessa up on high in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. We're also broadcast around Australia via the Community Radio Network and around the world via our podcast at feeds.feedburner.com slash Diffusion Radio. So until next week, I've been Matthew Clark and I expect to see you back here for another round of science news and views on Diffusion.